Now she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa. She's ready to go to the stars. This is the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. It's mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trab. This is Pixie. This is Dirty Red. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of looking around for a proper horse, but all you have is this mutated ostrich. What? <laughs> Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. This week we are talking about Fringeworthy in the Final Fantasy. Uh, intellectual property, and uh, we return to Josie once again, and of course Trav, uh, her stalwart sidekick, and see what she can tell us about how it would be like if you were a Fringeberry Explorer and you found yourself in a world that was Final Fantasy. All right, I I do want to introduce uh, Dirty Red now. Dirty Red is a member of the Trav cast, like Pixie and I are. And Dirty Red's going to be our subject matter expert tonight because how she and I met, a fellow Dementor Radio DJ, Minion, and Dirty Red have been playing Final Fantasy Online for years. So when this subject came up, I asked Josie to talk to Red about picking her brain for tonight. So, Red, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You get to see us. You get to see me and Pixie tone down a little. Uh <laughs> This will be a challenge on this end. Yeah, I know. What was a customer? We are PG rated. Already warned red. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, red nose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Professor, you're on. The primary focus of this one is, of course, on Final Fantasy X, which originally was released on PS2, but got a PS4 remastered version. And we decided to put it on. The negative 72,5. It's called Red Rock, a desert area with odd red mounds in the distance. These are the ruins of buildings and brick structures. There are no survivors in the lower shelters or living galleries. And you said it was on, and I can't read the... It is on a place, it is in a place known as Beaconel Island. Beaconel Island, okay. Yes, it is... It is Desert Island in the world of Spira. Which is where FFX is based. Yes. There is, of course, a wikia, as there is for everything. It's finalfantasy.wikia.com. And from there, it has everything about all the Final Fantasy games. As I said, we'll be concentrating on the 10, version 10 tonight. So, so the world of Final Fantasy 10 is what... Is that the um, the alternate that you're talking about? 
Yes. Yes. This okay. this one we're concentrating on is ten, given the fact that I have extensive knowledge on the subject. But the core mechanics of fringeworthy and how things work can be applied to any of the Final Fantasy games that are out, as far as I know. If you want to play a different one. Uh, is it every Final Fantasy has been on a different world, or has some uh, of them been on the same? It depends on what you're dealing with. Some of them can be construed as being on the same world. A lot of them, once they shift along, they are on separate worlds. The core mechanics can be applied to any of the Final Fantasy games. If you find that this one doesn't, this particular location doesn't work for the one you're wanting to do, you can always look through your portal book and find another one. There's a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, as I said, this isn't written in stone. This is just one we're choosing for tonight because of both Pixie and Red's extensive knowledge of the games. And so that Trev can throw it at us later during a planar mishap. I have no idea what you're talking about, miss. Heavens no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Red's game with me too. She knows how I am. <laughs> I will reiterate Riverside. Now, Red does have some knowledge of Fringeworthy because she was at the Con and the Cob running of Pokey Earth. So <laughs> she knows a little bit about the portal system and whatnot. And I get, I sent her a picture of the um, the node map so she knows, you know, prime, alt, system, star, start, hub. So um, just for reference, Red, where we place this world, just to give you a reference on how big the fringe paths are. Mm -hmm. Okay, in between each of those nodes at the alt platforms are 50-mile-long fringe paths, and those are what connect the alt platforms. Now, from where we base Pokey Earth to this alt platform and this Earth, Spira, 12,350-mile trip. That's how far those nodes are apart. That's quite a trek. Yeah, it is. It's basically on the opposite, opposite side of the node fringe paths. Pack your PPJs before you're going. Granola, Gatorade. Yeah. It's not like you so, can't stop places along the way. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's only, was it... 1,400 miles from uh, from Earth Prime, so it's not that far. Well, yeah, it's uh, let's see, it's in the negative 72 node. That's 3,500 miles, sorry. We did the Pokemon Earth at positive 174, and this is at negative 72 for FF10, so... Definitely a, a, late, ga a, a late game encounter. It can be done earlier if you want to have some kind of a fringe accident that somehow you get onto a train or you get abducted and somebody's nice enough to point you back in the direction you want to go when you're done. I mean, it, it, there's ways of getting it around procedurally, but if you get it as a result of normal expansion exploration, then yes, it's definitely going to be a late game kind of thing, but it doesn't have to be. Read that we have like three sections of the Fringeworthy canon. The early part would be the first five years, then six to 20 would be the, considered the middle campaign, and 20 years and on we just call the late campaign. And it's certain campaign arcs that fit into each one. So, okay. Could this be a portal or a warp? Uh, given the um, shifting nature of the canal, it is most likely a warp. 
Yes. Okay, so the portal station. Yeah, the portal station is buried or submerged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as we, as we've said on previous podcasts, if a portal station is either buried or submerged, it creates a warp at the first open area. And it's the 25-foot high rainbow warp and yeah. What is the name of the island again, Josie? Beaconell Island. It Beaconell. Okay. The other name is um, Sanubia Desert. So I take it this this Sanubia Desert on Beaconell Island is pretty remote from where most of the game would be. Yep. And yes, that island is pretty remote. That's why the people that are there are there. It's not that big because it's very zoomed out. But if you look at the descriptions, it actually sounds like it's supposed to be a bit bigger than what you see. Well, yeah, they say it's supposed to be, it's an island continent, so it's kind of like Australia. So it's going to be a pretty big island, because in yeah. the picture we have here on the wiki, there's no legend. There's no one no, inch equals no, this many miles. There's no scale, because it was literally just created for the two games. Right. Beacono Island is not a small island. No. what I'm seeing, I mean, if this is an island continent, Beacono Island's a nice sized chunk of land on the on the western side of a uh, Spira. Yeah, I, I would say that it's probably like Australia. Madagascar, that would probably be closer. Okay. But still, it's entirely desert. Oh, of course. The map that you could actually it's bigger is the one written in the native language. <laughs> uh, Josie, here's a question. You get out through this warp. You were on Beaconau Island in the Sanubia Desert. What would be the native population for the portal language gift to dump into your brain? Now that, that is actually an interesting thing. Okay. The native language would actually be, the, uh, the, the portal gift in this case would actually be the Albed language. Okay. They built their home on Beaconel after things happened. It's not exactly clear what even in game. It's just their their previous home was destroyed. They built this one here as a safe haven for their people. Well, yeah, because from what I read in in the wiki, there was a massive war between magic and technology or yes, uh, machina. Yes. what they call machines here. Right. And the society on Spira has gone more techno-magic. Using straight hard-tech machines, that's what the Albed does. And the Albed are kind of seen as, like, shunned. They're, they're seen as outcasts at best. Yes. For going so, against the faith's teachings. Yes. For going against so, teachings. You're on Beaconau Island here. Let's say you get to the mainland. Here you are. You're speaking idiomatic albed. You're walking around with visible technological objects on you. Guns and, you know, once you do your, your, your uh, photovoltaic cell charger so you have electronics. You get to the island, the, the continent proper you're not going to be seen as necessarily a, a, a fun person to be around because they're going to no. see you as Albed. They will see you as 
if not Albed, because they all have a unique, they all have the uh, unique trait of the, the green eyes with spirals. Okay. If not Albed, you are seen as Albed sympathizers. Yeah. I read up on the Albed and the, the big battle of Machina versus Magic. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, when Red and I were discussing this earlier, I'm like, yeah, that's going to be bad. It wasn't started because of the Albed, but it was later blamed on them because they refused to follow Yevon. Yevon is the local religion. Okay. Now, from what I've seen of, of Spira, I've seen pictures. Jo when Josie was still here, she showed me the wiki. And I'm seeing a lot of... It looks like high-tech, but it's all magic, so this would be a techno-magic society. There is a main character in this in this game, and his name is... From what the spelling is, I believe his name is supposed to be Titus. Yeah, we'll go with that. Okay, Titus. T-I-D-U-S. Yes. My teenager would argue, but it's kind of up to interpretation, I suppose, unless you're actually I speaking to a dev. And boy, is he a is he a pretty boy? <laughs> yeah, Titus, the main male protagonist, a rising blitzball player who was sent to Spira following the destruction of his hometown Xanarkand. With seemingly no way of knowing what has happened to him, he becomes guardian to Yuna on her pilgrimage in order to, in order to learn about the conflict he has been dragged into. Blitzball. Now I've seen the blitzball globe it's like a big silver globe probably like maybe 40 feet across or something like that <laughs> that yeah and from what josie Fish told ball. me it's kind of kind of like an anti-grav game but it's also a relic they use it but they they've forgotten how to like build more they just know it works so this is definitely so that proves between this massive war, magic versus machina, and that many of these techno magic relics—they just—they have no idea how to replicate them. This is definitely a post-apocalyptic society, and the fact that you have anti-grav magic through techno magic, it would be equivalent to a PL seven world, where you have found gravity induction, where you can manipulate the forces of gravity. Right, we could determine that they had reached that before that war started. Do you huh? happen to know how far back that war was? About a thousand years it was ended, but there's no way of knowing how, how far back it started from before. Blitzball is a sport over a thousand years old. Yeah, basically... The only concrete date we have is when the war ended, which is about a thousand years before Titus and Yuna. It's sports ball. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> of a couple of sports like football and basketball and that stuff. Just from looks, it looks like a combination of football, basketball, rugby, and soccer. Oh, kind of sports ball. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just yeah. for the record, I hated Blitzball. I love it. Okay. I would I, I handed my controller to my husband to play it because I <laughs> hate it. Well, if we're together and you want if we're in the same area and you want to do that, I will totally take over. 
because I managed to get Jack Shot to all three of Waka's other overdrives and the Jupiter Sigil, all with the original Aurochs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ogre did, too. Ogre was awesome with Blitzball. It was ridiculous, and he loved it. And I was like, yeah, great, play it, because I hate it. <laughs> uh, I'm saying it's a mixture of football football and water polo is how they describe it here. It's an aquatic minigame. Polo is water is water soccer. That explains the presentation I heard. Okay. Oh, it's God, my teenager was tetus. right. <laughs> that, that's fine. It is status. I will probably handle it later. <laughs> Uh, I was just informed as well that Ogre had over 40 hours into Blitzball alone. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sports ball tonight! <laughs> Give him the name Nimrook. Mm-hmm. That's his reaction. Nimrook. Look, I remember that name, okay? <laughs> I heard your Ug. Yes. <sighs> Just because I handed over the controller doesn't mean I didn't watch. <laughs> okay, so Pixie, um, when the United team comes through the, the warp and they meet up with the Albed, let me get on that link here. I'm uh, tribe of technologists making up 10% of the spear and population. They have a unique language. And unlike the other races in spirit, use machina or machines. Uh, let's see. There once was a mechanic named Alb who created the race called the Bettles, so humans who could not use magic who excelled at wielding machina, and used them to combat a Xanar candy and mage. Their weapons were so powerful they were kept under surveillance at all times. It's speculated that their power might have been the catalyst for the machina war. After the Yvonne religion was established, the Bettles were blamed for the emergence of sin and executed in numbers thereby casting them out of society. The surviving battles are really, really that. Later renamed the Albed, a corrupted mesh of their original name and their creator's name. About a thousand years ago, the Albed Society lived on Bicanal Island, whose most explored region was known as the Sanubia Desert. Their city was destroyed by sin, and the citizens scattered around Spira, often being detested by the other races of the world. A millennium later, under Sid's leadership, the Albed regrouped on Bicanal Island and built a new city called Home. Yes. Yeah, and looks like they they only exist in Final Fantasy 10 and 10 10 10 1 and 10 2 or something like that or 10 5 10 2 5. Um it is a lot easier to describe those as X and X2. All right. Given the fact that that is the Roman numeral for 10. Yeah. So j- just out so just out of curiosity so just out of curiosity they, they didn't they never reappear in later versions from the looks of it. It it doesn't look like that, but that could be because in later games we have not actually returned to Spira. They seem to exist just in this world. Oh, and it does include the character I indi- indi- indicated as possibly being a Meller. <laughs> Sid. Yes. Now, here's, here's the thing. It fits perfectly because it seems to be a universal constant in the Final Fantasy series that there is always a Sid, and he has something to do with the main party. Whether that's a... Whether in Final Fantasy VII, he was a party member. Uh, um, okay, let's read who Sid is here. Sid is a non-player character in Final Fantasy X. He is the leader of the Albed faction and captain of the Fahrenheit, an air- airship excavated from the depths of the ocean. 
He is Riku and brother's father and Yuna's maternal uncle. He's loud and boisterous traits that he's passed on to his son and is impulsive and quick to anger. He is proud of his Machina airships and was responsible for building the Albed Base home on Beacon Hill. According to 37 years old during Final Fantasy X. There actually is a SID entry, a generic SID entry. Basically to list all the different SIDs. Yeah. Like, so we're just going with this one here. This, this particular one, it makes even more sense to have him as the Melor because how else does he get that established? That airship, the, the Fahrenheit, is underwater when you first see it. Yeah, uh, in Final Fantasy tradition, Sid characters often have a group of distinct traits fans have come to expect. They are often mechanically minded and frequently portrayed as engineers or inventors. Sids are are often the source of airships the players use toward the game's end as its captain or creator. Uh, Sids characters are some, sometimes partially responsible for the main conflict within the game. As a result of inventions or research, one Sid is in fact a, a villain. But reading up on reading up on that character, there's another Sid. Oh, uh, you know, it, does does that sound like, to you, Trav? Like there's maybe more than one Meller on board, and they're all going by Sid. Could be, could be, could be. Maybe it just um. Re- okay, just maybe they're clones. According to Richard, uh, Meller reproduce. Once they're on a world, this is what Richard told me. By well, they get to know a woman, and they have, and they basically, um, they have twins. One of which is a perfect clone of the woman, and the other is a perfect clone of them without the knowledge. Oh, oh, okay. That suddenly explains explains Riku and brother right there. It also explains uh, in Final Fantasy t- uh, fifteen, Sid and Sydney. Oh, I know. That, 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 that just explained your brother right there. Okay, um, let me... Uh, Red, have I ever explained to you the concept of the Melor? Uh, no, but I'm, I think I'm kind of picking it up out of context. Okay, well, the Melor... Okay, the creators of the Fringe Paths, the Termelor, they made a race of... And this is like whole creche worlds where these are vat-created beings. Touch telepaths. They are shapeshifters. They can touch you and they'll absorb like a little bit of life force. Like in D20, one con point, you get it back. They absorb your skills, your feats, your looks, your memories, your powers. If you can cast magic, they do that. If you have Isai, they'll do that. Now, during the whole war that's in Fringeworthy, another servitor race known as the Kigak, the Kigak saw, oh, you guys are in servitude, we're going to free you. They made a bioengineered virus that the Melor can transmit via touch, and it devolves them into psychopathic killers, and now they can split geometrically. And as the more they split geometrically, the more debased and animalistic they get, to where you could start out with one infected master Melor and end up with thousands of least Melor. And they just, they'll just ravage a planet. Anything animal and plant life, they just devour well, that so, sounds fun. Part of the reason why the Kigak did that, they were still in Science Project. Yeah, the Kigak were nothing more than um, uplifted Dynanicus. And they realized, you know, it's like, oh, no, we came from the great Kigak in the sky. And the Mellor's like, no, you're the result of a Termellor that got his research grant. The Kigak didn't like that. 
So they said, we're going to free our brothers. Yeah. Now, well, get back at them. Uh, anyway, the Tremelin, the reason they made it, because, well, how can I put this? Tremelin, while they're great benefactors, I would, I would, I would say they're also a bit agoraphobic. <laughs> they really don't like other people. <laughs> I never got that. Are you I talking never... about the Meller or the Kegak? I know. I'm thinking the Tumelon. I mean, they made they they made the Meller because a they 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 use them for first contact with other races. No, John, that's not a result of agoraphobia. That's just a result of ease ease of infiltration. They absorb the the base form of whatever life is on that planet because the Tumelon are basically uh, Sheila. They're basically anthropomorphic bear cats with a prehensile tail. Bear dogs Aww. and massive. Yeah, I want one. <laughs> and you and you can have one, but you're going to have to pay for its education. Yes, and they and they talk in rhyme all the time. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That might be a deal breaker. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to get read. I just I just wanted to get read up on the speed of the term the Melor that we're throwing around here, because she's only played in the one pokey or fringeworthy game and. There were many concepts we didn't touch upon, so... And you also never know if someone new found the podcast or not. Correct. Well, right. We appreciate the speed-up. Yes. And I'm looking at the villain one. Where is it? Where is he? There he is in Final Fantasy XII. He's actually... There's Dr. Sidophilus. I remember now what that one was. I... But there also is Alcid. Yes. The good... In the bad one. You know, Dr. Sidophilus Demon Bunas, Bun, Bunansa, Bunansa. And the other one is El Cid Magres. I'm hearing how Pixie's getting as we're talking about Sid being a Melor. I've known Pixie long enough to know that's not a good sound that she makes when John makes that connection. What? Just that oh my god type sound, you know. Like I said, like I said earlier in the conversation, keep talking, I'll start plotting, and I've gotten to the likes. <laughs> yes, I mean he. This uh, reading up is uh, reading up on it, the character. He was obsessed with nethesite. It was all he, he he cared about. He babbled nonsense, blind to blind to aught but the stone's power. He'd talk about some inya. Or was it Vinet? Vinet. No matter. Everything he did, he did to get closer to Nethesite, to understand it. He made airships, weapons. He even made me a judge. Uh, yeah, that's. It sounds like he's a sterile master meddler trying to do something on this world, and it looks like he. And from the looks of it, that's what he's doing. He's basically he's a master meddler trying to start a war. A master meller is the is the uh, the is an old meller who's been infected and becomes a master meller. Those are typically sterile. It's the ones that were created by the Kegak uh, directly that are the ones that can breed. And they, as they breed, as they breed, Sheila, they start devolving a little bit until they lose pretty much all of their intelligence and they just become animalistic. And also, after a while, they don't shape shift. They can't absorb a form. If I remember correctly, a Master Meller can breed another Master Meller, 
through using by inserting a a a, 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 a capsule into a into a into a person and letting it grow. Uh, no, usually I, that okay. That's new to me. Then very rarely, but it can because most of them are sterile. But the ones that aren't, yes, they can do that. Okay. Okay. So and, and they prefer living, I think, over dead. But they'll use a dead body too. And when you consider the fact that you know, I forget what the percentage is ninety. You know, one, only one percent of them is not sterile. Okay. Still, when you're talking about a million million worlds, that's an awful lot of breedable meller who are yeah. who, who are willing to breed do the split and all that stuff and, and get the highest level powered Meller underneath them as minions. So yeah, it's, 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 it sounds like a limitation, but it really isn't. The good Sid seems to be one of those assistant Sids who is busy helping steer civilization toward some goal. Cause it sounds like it's, there's a lot of Sids giving out quests from the sounds of it. <laughs> The Sid and Eleven was uh, who you went to to get airship access when you were of level range to be able to do it. Ah. Uh-huh. So it definitely was an assistant character, which is what Old Miller were. They were assistants. They really weren't prot- uh, actual, uh, active uh, protagonists or antagonists, as the case may be. Uh, they were more of the power behind the throne. They were the person who would whisper in your ear an, an idea, and then you went, oh, that sounds like interesting. <laughs> Which is kind of what makes this whole thing kind of funny with the Sid from FX because he's kind of become the leader of these people. You do what you gotta do. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, it does sound an awful lot like a uh un um unmodified Meller. Uninfected. Uninfected, yeah. Yeah, or old Miller as we see. Old in the Miller, yeah. yeah. Original yeah. old Miller, right. Uh, Original flavor. There are three different versions of Meller. Uh, there are the old uninfected Meller. There are the infected Meller, and then there are the infected mutant Meller. Technically, there's also a a Meller Meller horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't make me um. Yeah, don't leave me summoned Bahamut because I totally will. Final Fantasy is a high fantasy world, even with the techno magic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You have giant yellow birds that can run really fast. Yeah, mutated ostriches, yeah. <laughs> and there's a breeding program. You can breed them to get even better ones. Okay, well, that, that's something that really that the that the IDET people, the United people, will not be getting involved in. I mean, this is... We're... They wouldn't get involved in that, but um, if they came across it. But I would say chocobos, which are giant yellow birds. I mean, basically, they they they're the, the, the for the most part they're all giant yellow, uh, cross between an auk and a uh, no, they're more like an auk, more like a giant a great auk with yellow, big fluffy yellow flever, feathers. <laughs> yeah. The most part chocobos <laughs> are yellow, however. In other games, there have been, let's see, there was a red chocobo enemy. There's a white one. I see a picture of a white one. There's a black one that can actually fly. Mm-hmm. And there's the gold chocobo. Oh, there! I see a blue one. You can breed them in 11. Uh, you can breed them in uh, 7. If anyone 
but has, if anyone listening has played Final Fantasy Seven, you probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, and and I look at it and say, you know, if they have their their magical abilities would turn off on the fringe path, but otherwise they're perfectly usable writing creatures. Yeah, they are routinely trained as mounts. One of the things that we were discussing before is a type of magic user on this world. Now, I'm sure that there are artificers, because you, how did you make all this techno magic? Um, but there is there a type of magic user in particular. Hmm? Ah, yes. What was that, Josie? Um, yes, there are artificers in the world. I have interpreted the equipment customization mechanic as basically Riku being an artificer. Yeah, basically wizards and whatnot who just made everything, you know, like the the Blitzball domes. They, they, you know, they had the knowledge of making those, you know, centuries ago, and they probably lost that knowledge because this was a regressing society. But there is a type of spellcaster, divine in nature, known as a summoner. Now, what is it that they summon exactly, Pixie? The summoner calls forth beings known as aeons. They visit they visit temples across Spira and pray to the faith. And each of the faith gives them a particular aeon that they can summon into battle. I'm seeing similarities to pokey trainers and you're getting badges after you go through whatever it is. So these a these aeons are kind of like Gaining your badge, yeah. Earlier, you talked about Yuna's pilgrimage and Titus. I'm going to ignore the pronunciation. I'm just going to go with what rolls okay. up. Add a girl. I, I've been messing up Spira, so it's only fair. Yeah. Yeah. But you talked about Yuna's pilgrimage. Praying at each of the temples, being the aeons, that is part of the summoner's pilgrimage. Okay, now since our last version of Fringeworthy is D20 and Pathfinder is the current Fringeworthy or the current Path Pathfinder is the current D20 game. Now I was trying to do okay, Divine Spellcaster. I was thinking okay, cleric, cloistered cleric archetype from Ultimate Magic, and, and they focus on summon monster spells. But yeah. Pixie, I Pixie previously found. I had tried to look at Cleric because I was thinking, okay, Lulu, she's a sorcerer. She's an arcane bloodline sorcerer. Her arcane bond is through that Moogle doll she carries around. Okay. And yes. Now. But Yuna, I was having trouble with. I looked at Cleric because the whole, the priest of Yevon, the divine magic, and I looked at Summoner, and I found That's a... arcane, yeah. Right. Mostly arcane, but I found a divine magic-based Summoner archetype called the Celestial Summoner. This one the had... The Celestial Commander, yeah. Yes. The, or, yeah, Celestial Summoner, Celestial Commander, something. But instead of the Eidolon, which is um, basically like Summoner's constant companion creature, they have a focus on the planar ally spells. Yes. yes. That made more sense because that could be applied to the faith and the 
I even interpreted the whole bargain part portion of the spell. Um, the the Celestial Commander class is available in two books, uh, both by Stephen D. Russell. The Secrets of Tactical Archetypes and the Secrets of Adventuring from Wright Publishing, R-I-T-E, as in Rite of Passage. And these book, 2011-2013, uh, respectively. But I'm looking through this. I'm, I'm here on the um, d20pfsrd.com, which is pretty much the system re resource document site for Pathfinder. And let's see, blessed by the celestial gods to fight the forces of evil, the celestial commander has been granted many abilities that allow him to effectively command the forces of good. Uh, alignment, any good, weapon and armor proficiency. They're proficient with all simple weapons and light medium armor. Spells, unlike normal summoners, celestial commanders are divine spellcasters. Other ways, the celestial commander's spellcasting is like a normal summoner. And then they modify the spell list. You learn celestial, you gain a domain. And then you get all these various divine-based abilities, including summoning mastery, focus divine energy, augment summon, superior summons, soldiers of the gods to all creatures who summon get a, uh, with a spell-like ability to get a teamwork feat, bolster the troops, you can, you know, give bonuses to your summoned creatures. And, and, after, and after a while, you become nearly deific. I mean, you get a bunch of immunities, resistances, heck, you sprout wings and gain a flight speed, and you get, you can speak with any creature. So, I mean, and after that, a while, from what I'm seeing, this is a very powerful class, and this would be the best thing for someone like Yuna. Yes. Well, because uh, the summoner, from what I read, the summoner is like the Japanese shrine priest known as Amiko. M-I-K-O. And uh, another term would be a shrine maiden. Yes. But there are the, the focus is on Yuna, of course, being her story. There are other yeah. summoners you interact with, though. So, uh, yes? Well, Red sent me a video earlier of and what, um, Red, was that Yuna casting, or was that just a summoner at work? A uh, summoner at work. That was her performing Ascending. Ah, yes. Okay, the, but... Ascending. Um, it is a specific... It, it's a ritual, basically, to send the souls of the fallen to what is called the far plane. To make yes, sure yes. They, they To make sure they don't linger. If they linger, they become fiends. Yes, that can Yeah. Happen. Oh, no, there was another name besides fiend. I'm trying to remember what it was. But, yeah, there was another name I saw for basically a ghost that is not passed on. Unsent. That, thank you. Yes. And there is actually, there are... One, two, three, four people. You meet directly through the storyline that are unset. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you really want to know who they all are, but I wasn't going to say that. Well, um, okay. If, if they were coming to contact with these players, as I said, these players arrive on... Uh, Beacon Island in the Sanubia Desert. 
they're going to be dealing with the Albed most likely. And Pixie, would this be a story verse? As in the United team gets caught up in the whole quest of Titus and Yuna? Um, it can be, but it does not have to be. It really depends on when you want them to come through. If you want them to come through while Titus and Yuna are there, then, yeah, they could get caught up in that. If you, <clears throat> through, you know, if you had them come through at a different time, then there's little chance of them actually interacting. Okay, because it says Titus arrives to Spira uh, from Zanarkand and camps out in the abandoned Baj Temple. He is attacked by a fiend, but saved by an Albed salvage group led by Riku, startling him as he'd never encountered an Albed before. Only Riku speaks the main spear language and acts as a translator. Titus is allowed him to come on board the Albed salvage ship, but in exchange for their hospitality, he must assist the group in their salvage operation. Afterward, the ship is attacked by Sin, and Titus washes overboard and wakes up in Besaid, where he joins Summoner Yuna's pilgrimage. Yes, that is a very nice summarization of the early the. Okay, let me let me look at the ba- let me look at the Baj Temple here real quick. Baj Temple is a obviously ruined temple. There, the submerged ruins. Yep, the submerged ruins as a massive um, the massive ruins off the mainland of Spira, situated south of the island of Beaconel. Baj is the first location that may be explored by the player. is critical to understand the emotional development of Maesters. Maester Simor Guado, one of the game's major antagonists. It was a great island city, Guado? Seymour Guado is his actual okay. pronunciation. Okay. Uh, Baj that... was a great island. Hmm? Hmm? Oh. No, continue. I was just saying. You're fine. Okay, I'm, I'm continuing reading the little blurb here. Baj was a great island city before an attack by Sin left the underlying geology permanently destabilized. Most of the city collapsed into the sea, save for a series of interconnected ruins surrounding the temple. Bosch Temple is the only remaining building on the archipelago, though it is in poor structural condition. The entrances are submerged conduits may only be accessed by swimming through fiend-infested waters. As a formal temple of Yevon, it shares the style and iconography with the other temples, but the cloister of trials and the main antechamber has been lost to the sea. Well, it says here to access Bosch Temple, the player must acquire the Fahrenheit and talk to Sid and access the coordinate option. Baj is found by searching for these coordinates. Visiting Baj is essential for receiving the Ion Anima. Baj is inaccessible in Final Fantasy X2. Okay. So, yeah. What? I'm sorry. Ow. Oh. But, yeah, if you are, if you're involved and you are in the Beaconel Desert and you're there when Um. Titus is picked up by... They don't actually go, um, yeah, if you're there when Titus and them are going to be picked up by the Fahrenheit, actually that is during the destruction of home. That's when you first end up on the Fahrenheit. Oh, so I could actually see the if you have if you got a a, a, a group of of IDET, uh there, you got an IDET, you got an IDE team there. I could see them doing their best to help you know help with the help defend home, 
at that point. If there's anything they could do, at the very least, they'll do the old, uh, this way, we have healer, we can help you heal, and stuff like that, and this way to the safety, you know. They would wind up assisting in the evacuation if they Especially when they see when they see Titus pull out his BAS. It's not really that big. In each field, it's not really that big. Now, Bruce said we should not use acronyms, but unfortunately, I can't. I can't give you the proper spelling of this uh, acronym because it does because we are PG. It's a huge sword. Let's just Again, leave it at that. Not really that big. If you look at how Titus is standing, Bruce is how he's holding. It's like a typical longsword size. Look at Orin's. That's bigger. She's right. Yeah. What? What's so hard to say about big almighty sword? Correct. There you go. Thanks. All right. Big amazing swords. That too. That too. I mean, it's it's five foot tall. I'm just looking at it, and and well, that's that's a spy hunter. Yeah. And he's only at one hand. This is a Zweihander. Um, you know, feet that works with that. Oh, yeah. What, what, is there a feat for that? Let you wheel a Zweihander as though it's a one-handed weapon? Uh, it's a 3.5 feet called monkey grip. But yeah, if you wanted to go back to 3.5 and allow that, you could. And that also explains why Oren's wielding his huge sword in one hand. I know you can't see me now, and that's a good thing, but I... Yeah, it's it's also big. It's all it's it's basically it looks like it's a um oh what's that? It's a Japanese long. It's a Japanese super long sword, and it's got a special name for it. I want to say Nodachi, or is that Chinese? Or was it a Wakizashi? No, Wakizashi is the smaller of the two. Katana, Wakizashi. Katana, maybe, because actually one of his base swords, a lot of Oren's swords are named for such things. But it's not the biggest one I've seen, though. I've seen ones that basically are, are at least 10 foot to 12 foot long. Right. Uh, ignore. Moving on from the huge sword station. Yeah. This guy's got to compare swords, you know. <laughs> And I'm yeah, sure no being a size, no being a size queen, John. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of it. That is fun. In fact, I like admiring them myself. All but right. Um, moving on. Yeah. Size well, chart for Japanese swords. Thank you, Red. Okay. No problem. Red would know. And it's more than likely a long odachi. Odachi, that's it. No dachi, I was right. Odachi, not no dachi. Yes, two different things. Yeah, it's an odachi, but it's about three times thicker. Yeah, well. Okay, moving on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If if we don't move on, Red's gonna have to mute because oh lord. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons license. 
3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.